This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. I'm Roxanne Cody with R.J. Julia Booksellers, and you are joining us on Just the Right Book Shorts. Our guest, as always, is Billy Goldstein, who is a author, essayist, reviewer with NBC, and just a great reader, which is why we have him on. So what we try to do on Just the Right Book Shorts is cover lots of books in a short amount of time, just sort of whet your appetite for some books or amuse you on a 20-minute walk or run or while you're doing the dishes or baking or doing something that needs distracting. So at best, we're informative. At worst, we're a distraction, I guess. Um, So, Billy, uh, let's start with what you're reading and loving. Well, the book I just read and loved, uh, well, one of the books I just read and loved is The Vaster Wild by Lauren Groff, who I think is just a, a fantastic novelist. I think my comparison uh, may be getting a little outmoded uh, because I'm not sure as many people read the author I'm going to compare her to as as probably should. But Jane Smiley, uh, the, the reason I uh, invoke uh, Jane Smiley is Lauren Groff does something different in each of her books. They're always a leap mm. uh, into not, not quite another genre, but uh, either another time or another place or another style. And she does everything so well. And I always admire that about Jane Smiley, too, um, the way uh, she could write a book about 19th century America, or she writes a book about the present day, or she writes a book, you know, from the point of view of a horse. And Lauren Groff's The Vaster Wilds is this very beautifully written, mysterious novel that begins with a girl, a a young girl, running away from a Jamestown-like settlement in the early 17th century here in what becomes the United States. Obviously, this is the first English settlement. And escaping starvation, I mean, the starvation in this, this place, but going forward into an even greater unknown. And what I loved about the book is all of the unknowns that we are faced with as she is faced with the unknown territory ahead of her. But we don't at first know where she's come from, who she is, I mean, where she came from, you know, before she was in this in this settlement, and how the book unfolds as we learn more about her and what her past was and we see the people uh, the indigenous people the strange figures on the landscape the animals that she encounters and the mysteries remain even as we are learning more about her experience but the language of this is just is so beautiful lauren groff has said in interviews that she just sort of immersed herself in the elizabethan language and i feel that we get that 
that feeling of that time and place in the same way that in her book, Matrix, her last book, which was published two years ago, we were set in this community of, of female divines in you know the Middle Ages. And we get women's experience of the past centuries opened to us in the most beautiful language possible. And it's all speculative what these women were living through. And I love that that brave speculation done with gorgeous language. Well, Billy, I'm really thrilled that you brought this up because a couple of weeks ago on a Friday night, we were hosting Lauren Groff for an event and we had a packed house at the store And there are three things uh, that I want to follow up on about Lauren Groff. One is, if she comes to anywhere near any of you, run to listen to her. Because (laughs) she she is one of the best author speakers. That sounds, that's a wrong juxtaposition. But she talks about her books in such a... Uh, confident, sparkling way, number one. Number two, she's just wildly entertaining. And she is just brilliant. She drops in these references to science or psychology or philosophy in a way that doesn't feel remotely pretentious, but feels feels informative and expansive on what she's talking about. I I just could not get over how fabulous she was. And she said something that I think is important for us to be reminded of. You and I had recorded a banned books episode, but one of the things that Lauren Graff talked about was that some books are meant to be entertainment. And that's a worthy reason for reading. It's distracting, you're charmed, you're you're distracted, and it's perfect. But she says art of any sort is meant to make you a little bit uncomfortable (laughs) because the idea is it's making you think. It's, It's challenging the status quo. It's challenging how you think. And I think what she's done in her books is take something that we look at one way. In Fates and Furies, it's how we look at marriage. Fates and Furies to me is just a brilliant, one of the most brilliant takes on what you think is going on in a marriage and what might really be going on in a marriage. In Matrix, as you say, we were not necessarily thinking of an abbey in the Middle Ages being so run and dominated and created to an expansive degree by women. And then in her latest book, Vaster Wilds, we think of Jamestown and we don't think of a teenage girl who might flee and what she might confront in that fleeing. So uh, I think... I would highly recommend anybody, everybody reading anything by Lauren Groff. If you see her on her tour for her latest book, please make sure you go see that. And you could start anywhere reading her books and you'll be happy. The writing, as Billy said, 
some of the most beautiful writing you can encounter, even in this latest book, which is has a bleakness to it. There's a sense of hope because of the beauty of her language. I mean, the brutality of nature, the the beauty and brutality of nature and of of people is is just so brilliantly handled. And yes, I agree completely. You know, the the there's a hope in fleeing too, because it's not only what you're fleeing from, but what you're fleeing toward. And I think you you have those tensions in in this book. We talk about new books a lot of the time, but it's often when someone like Lauren Groff has a new book, it might be a provocation for people who haven't read her to go back to Fates and Furies. I mean, you know, to an earlier That's book, right. meaning to read. So speaking of older books and speaking of beautiful writing, one of the memoirs that I still consider one of my top memoirs is a book by Diana Athill that was written in 2000. And Diana Athill is deceased. She died in 101 but an extraordinary and renowned editor, a uh, British woman. And Stett is about an editor's life. And the reason I even was reminded of this book is in the September, one of the September New York Times book review, there was, an, there was a review about a novel of hers uh, titled Don't Look at Me Like That, which is being republished by New York Review Books, which is what they do. And it was first published in 1967. I don't think I realized she had a novel. I'm going to get it and I'll report back. But Stead, for a reader, anybody in the industry, anybody interested in language, and anybody interested in reading about a woman who was fearlessly and honestly living life. And there's one sentence I want to read from this because my husband often teases me about how I read dark, depressing books. And I'll say, oh my God, I just read the best book on the Holocaust, you know, making it sound like it's the latest, you know, Agatha Christie mystery. But here's what she talks about. People sometimes ask why Gitta Sereni habitually writes about evil, but I do not see it as surprising that someone plunged into such scalding awareness of it so early in her life should be haunted by it. It is only because it frightens us too much that we don't all think about it much more than we do. Everything that makes life worth living is a result of humankind's impulse to fight the darkness in itself and attempting to understand evil is part of that fight. And, you know, this a little bit connects to our band book. It's a little bit of an extension. This idea that by confronting that these things exist is how we become better at living with it, or as Diana Athill says, fighting it. So 
The book I want to make sure we're sharing with everybody is Diana Athill's Stet. And I love how themes emerge accidentally as we're talking. I mean, because this, what you've just read links back to what you said, Lauren Groff said about art making people uncomfortable. And and so that's perhaps something that was accidental and yet not, because I think we we as readers, any readers are often led from one book to the other by some unconscious draw that, you know, that that may seem accidental and yet over time emerges as a thread in as a thing. Okay, what what next, Billy? Well, a completely different book uh and one I found revelatory and riveting is a book called The Times by Adam Nagurney who it's about the New York Times and it has a long subtitle How the Newspaper of Record Survived Scandal, Scorn and the Transformation of Journalism. And it's about the New York Times from about the late 70s to the election of Trump, which almost coincided in early 2018 with a shift in uh, another shift in the generations of Salzburgers who run the company, who were publishers. So Arthur Salzberger Jr. left and uh, his, his son became publisher not long after the election. And what's amazing about this book, I mean, is Adam Nagurney is a reporter at the Times, and he's been there since 1996, but he holds nothing back. I mean, there's a great deal of honest criticism of the the Times' mistakes in that time, Jason Blair, Judith Miller, other scandals, as he refers to it. And then also about the New York Times, the business side. So there's one part about the editorial side of the New York Times, but interwoven in this is the story of the business side and how that shifts, particularly uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, as the web comes to dominate. And and so you get how the New York Times website changes, you know, the existence of the web changes the New York Times. But what's so fascinating here is are all the personalities and uh, the people who run the newspaper, the people who run the website. Adam Nagurney captures them, their personality quirks. He's, as I said, he doesn't hold back in criticizing the paper or a lot of the people who, who have run it. And and so you feel this great honesty on the page. I worked at the New York Times uh, from 1996 to about 2010 in various capacities, including at first as the books editor of the New York Times on, on the web. We created the book's website, which launched in 1997. And so I was witness to a lot of what he is describing. And it's as if I w- had not even been there. I mean, there's so many levels of stuff that I didn't know were going on, which made it in that way revelatory for me personally. But also when I say he captures the personalities, I mean, the things that I did know about, he deepens my understanding of them. And all of the people I worked with who are in the book or worked with or knew, he captures them so quickly in his portraits of them on the page that I realized I was, I could trust everything he was saying about the people I never knew. And I, I am not in the index. I do not make an appearance. So, you know, I, that, that I, I, I must give that, uh, you know, ethical thing up front. I'm not in the book. And I loved, I loved it. And I think anyone who cares about democracy, cares about journalism, cares about understanding how institutions are run and shaped and change and the way institutions, uh, great institutions fail uh, in their mission. It's, it's like reading Michael Lewis's books. I mean, that you're not mm. necessarily 
you didn't think you wanted to know about baseball, but you do, you know, money ball. Yeah. You didn't think you wanted to know about Solomon Brothers, but you love liars poker. And the, that's also what's going on here. It's just an amazing story of uh, one of the great institutions of this country and how it succeeds and how it fails. All right. Well, A, you've reminded me that I can't wait to read Michael Lewis's new book, which is going to be about Sam Bankman Freed and FTX and this cryptocurrency blow up. And I am interested in that, but I bet it'll be the same thing. Even people who didn't think they will be interested will read it. And now you've, of course, made me want to read Adam Nagurney's new book. So the last book I'm going to mention really quickly is We Have Jacques Pepin, the legendary French cook who's like now a social media star with his little videos. We hosted him for an event for his new book, but I was reminded that he wrote a memoir called Apprentice that is just a beautiful memoir. He's a really lovely writer. And the time span that he covers, he was born in 1935, came to this country uh, in the 60s, had worked for de Gaulle, had worked for Howard Johnson's, is a philanthropist now encouraging uh, people who might not have other opportunities at a career to become accomplished chefs in a short period of time. So I would encourage everybody to pick up The Apprentice by Jacques Pepin. Well, that went quickly, Billy. Thank you. Uh, you've been listening to Just the Right Book. Well, I'm very grateful to everyone who listens. I hope you subscribe, tell your friends. You can subscribe on Spotify or Apple. You can write to us at podcast at rjjoya.com. And thank you so much for listening, Billy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Roxanne. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.